Thank you for being here this evening. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some on either side of you. Uh, little paperback ESV Bibles. Feel free to uh, consider that our gift to you. Even if you have lots of Bibles but no ESV Bible, uh, grab one and take it home with you because the ESV Bible is the best one that's out there. Bold but true statement. Deal with it. Yes. Every preacher should say that at least once in a sermon. Bold but true. Deal with it. Um, Before I try to be funny again, let's pray. God, I thank you for tonight. I I thank you for uh, your truth in your word. Father, I thank you how you've Reveals yourself and your will and your desires for us through your scripture, God. Lord, I pray now as, as we collectively come together to try to, to perceive what it is you, you're, you're speaking to us, God, that you would uh, give us clarity, give my, my words clarity, Father, and, and that we would drive to the heart of, of what you want for us tonight, Father. Expose sin in our lives, expose idols in our lives, Father, and uh, may your Son be glorified through our words and our thoughts tonight. We thank you so much for Scripture. We thank you so much for Jesus. It's in His perfect name that I pray. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and uh, you'll hear me talk tonight uh, a lot tonight about idols and uh, in, in this culture in 2009 when, when, I, when I say the word idol. Uh, a lot of times people think uh, quickly about this little television show that's on Fox from time to time. Um, and uh, if you know me very well, you, you know that uh, I think that American Idol is perhaps the, the, the greatest tragedy since Star Wars to be perpetrated on the American culture. Uh, uh, and... Uh, Star Wars really is just a personal taste. American Idol, however. Our, our, our culture propping up people, propping up fame, propping up, hey, look at B, whatever. Um, it's not something I'm going to get into tonight. But that's where our mind goes when we, when we think about idols. But I want to, before we get into the scripture tonight, deal with, with idols. Idols are things that we chase after harder than we chase after God. Idols are things that define us more than Jesus defines us. Idols are things that we do not want Jesus to ask us for. Perhaps our money, perhaps our family, perhaps our standing, acceptance, our children, our husband, our spouse, our wife, our parents. Idols are things that if God took away from us, we would question His love for us. And idols, most importantly, and and I think where where I want to get at tonight and where I think Scripture is getting at tonight, idols are the thing that make us feel significant. Idols are the things that make us feel significant. So where we get our significance from, where we think our identity and our significance is from is can be an idol for us. 
So, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Familiar story for, for many of you. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Two things I want to, I want to bring out about this one particular verse. And as he was setting out on his journey... We have to be fully aware that the journey that Christ is on here at this point, He is heading towards Jerusalem. And when He's heading towards Jerusalem, that means He's heading towards His death. Jesus is is walking on a path to die as, as He encounters this man. And on this journey, a man ran up and knelt before Him and asked Him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to back up. Luke records the same story in his gospel. Matthew records the same story in his gospel. Matthew calls him rich, and Luke calls him a rich young ruler. So this is a significant man. Uh, it's a man who is distinguished by his culture, distinguished by, by who he is. And because he's rich and because he's a ruler, he would have been propped up by the society as someone who was important, someone to look to, someone who he would gain his significance in his money, he would gain his significance in his power. Here he is running to Jesus, and in this age, men don't run. He's running to Jesus. In this age, men don't kneel. He is kneeling before Jesus. This guy is, is totally admitting humility before Christ. And he, he runs in, in a very undistinguished sort of way and kneels in a very undistinguished sort of way, yet here he is running to the feet of Jesus, kneeling and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I also want us to note that this is not some overly religious guy that we want to pile on all the time. This is not one of the Pharisees who wants to use Jesus to gain power or, or thinks that Jesus is some sort of threat to his current power. This is a guy who understands that he is less than Christ, understands that Jesus has something that he wants, and he goes to Jesus humbly bowing before him. While this guy is a religious guy, He's not an overly religious guy that's dependent upon uh, or is scared or thinks of Jesus as some sort of threat. Here he is in a physical and spiritual position of admitted authority in in Christ. You are my authority, and in a physical and spiritual way, he is submitting to that authority. He is in great humility. That's the setup. Verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. These words are very very specific. Jesus is directing this man's attention toward God. It'll be obvious here in a second that this man's idea of, of goodness is totally wrapped up and totally defined by achievement. He runs to Jesus and calls him good teacher. Jesus contradicts him and says, no, don't call me good. God is the only one that's good. Jesus intentionally directing his, his attention towards God as the only one that's good because this mind, this man's mind is made up that goodness is wrapped up in your achievement. And we'll get to that here in just a second. Verse 19, Jesus is answering his question. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. He's not too different from us in his relationship with Jesus here. He's, he's humble, he's wanting to please, he's wanting to be obedient, Yet he realizes that something is missing. His religious security, he's completely aware that his religious security is a facade. And he's aware that he lacks approval of God. 
I want to want to stop just for a second and and hammer on us and hammer on me and hammer on on this guy. Your religion cannot save you. Your religious activity cannot save you. Your rule keeping cannot save you. Your good behavior cannot save you. Here is this guy, this rich young ruler who has kept all the commandments since he was born. That's what he just said. And Jesus says, he he realized, he's fully aware that that's not enough. Nothing that we can do, no amount of rule keeping that we can do can save us, can bring us into right standing with God. We, We have to come to grips with that. And, and I want us to know, I, I, want to, I want to stop here just for a second and, and tell a, a bit of a story. When I, was in, when I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team. And I started on the wrestling team because I was the only guy in the school who was little enough to wrestle in the lowest weight classes. Here's the truth. My freshman year of high school, I was 4'10", and I weighed 90 pounds. Not a joke, 90 pounds. The lowest weight class for freshmen was 93 pounds. So I wrestled in the 93-pound weight class as a freshman, and most of the kids, I, I, I totally dominated. Won like the first four matches because I just, they're 90-pound kids. They're little bitty tiny kids, and <laughs> of which I was one. Uh, uh, so uh, I do pretty well in my first four freshman matches, and then uh, a guy gets hurt that was in the 105-pound the weight class for the varsity. 98 was the lowest, 105 was the second lowest, and so they brought me up to the varsity team to wrestle in the 105-pound weight class. Remember, I'm 90 pounds, so I'm giving up 15 pounds. I'm giving up more than 10% of, of me to my opponents. Uh, my first match, uh, I, I won the match. My, my second match, I, I got destroyed, and my freshman year was kind of rough. Won five or six matches and lost 10 or 12 varsity matches. Sophomore year rolls around, and... and I've, I've, I've bulked up to about 110, uh, and so I'm wrestling in a 112-pound weight class at this point, and about 500, win about half my matches, but at this point, nobody in the school has, has lettered varsity their freshman and sophomore year, and, and you know, I, I'm hearing people say, hey, this guy's got some, he might be the first medalist that we've had in McClure in a really long time, blah, 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 whatever. So my junior year rolls around, and, and I, I weigh 115 pounds. And the next weight class up was 119. Uh, you guys, I know you're wondering, wow, how did he, how did he get so big now? <laughs> uh, so I weigh 115 pounds, and uh, there's like one dual match where we just wrestled against another school, and then the the first real event of the of the season is the Rittner tournament. And my coach comes to me about. Uh, five days before that tournament, I'm weighing 115 pounds, and he says, uh, I want you to wrestle 112 for, this, for the Rittner tournament, because I feel like if you wrestle 112 for this Rittner tournament, we're going to have our, our best. You're going to win your, the 112 weight class, and that'll help our team. We'll probably, we might win the whole tournament as a team. And I was like, wait a second. I lettered varsity my freshman and sophomore year. I get to wrestle where I want to wrestle. And the rules were... The, the, the written and spoken rules about weight classes are, in, in practice, if a guy wants your weight class, he's got to challenge you to a match in practice and beat you. All right? There's this guy named Tebow. All right? Coach, coach's thought is that Tebow 
is going to be the 119 wrestler, and I'm going to be the 112 wrestler. And my mind is, Tebow, he's got no chance. So I don't, I don't have to lose weight. I'm going to wrestle what I want to wrestle because I'm Rick, and I'm, a, I'm 115 pounds. <laughs> and uh, so coach says, I don't care if he can beat you or not. You're, if you don't get to 112, you're not wrestling in a Ritter tournament. And I was like, all right, see you later. And I quit. I never wrestled again. Uh, the aggravating thing is guys that I was beating in my junior year medaled at state and won state their senior year. And because I was so caught up in, in me and look at me and the rules and, and all that, that I, I lost out on what was possibly there. What it was in my head was my coach took away my rights. By my rights, I have the rights of the 119 weight class because Tebow couldn't, had no chance. So my rights were I get this weight class. That was in my head. My coach took those away from me. But ultimately what was happening was my coach was trying to make me the best that I could be and make our team the best that it could be. I want us to know, I don't want to get into the ins and outs of that story, but I tell that story because my coach was pressing in on me to make me better. God is pressing in on us to make us better. God is exposing idols in our life. I was an idol to me, and the rules were an idol to me in my wrestling story. God is pressing in on us to expose idols that are in our life so that we can be rid of them, so that we can enjoy perfect relationship with Him. Everybody in this room has an idol. And there are obvious idols in our lives. Money is an obvious idol in our lives. All of us. We think it defines us. We think it is significant to us. We think without it, we can't survive. Uh, family is an obvious idol to us. Uh, power, obvious idols to us. And, but there are so many things in our lives that God is pressing in on, pressing hard in on. And my hope... I. I come in here, here's, here's my setup for a typical Sunday. I get up and, on a Sunday morning and, and we do breakfast and all that stuff. And then I go and re- retreat and kind of look over the sermon. And then at 3 o'clock I come back in this room and, and I kind of pray through and read through this sermon. Here in this room tonight, I was praying at, at 3.15. If you'd have walked by, you'd have thought I was weird because I was, was praying loud. I was, me and God. Uh, but the thing I was, I was deeply moved to pray for us about is that God would expose idols for each of us. I walked up and down each one of these chairs. The chair that you're sitting in, I prayed over that chair between 3 and 3.30 this afternoon. That God would expose the idols that are in your heart. The obvious ones, like money, like power, like attention, like fame, and the not-so-obvious ones, like our, our craving for acceptance. Or our craving for for, for people to like us, or our craving for God to bring us a, a spouse if we don't have a spouse, or our craving for God to make our, our lives better, our lives more happy. We have obvious idols, we have subtle idols, but at the heart of us, we all have idols. And God is pressing in this moment, and I'm, I'm begging of God that He would press in the next 20 to 30 minutes, that He would press in on each of us to expose our obvious and our subtle idols, and we would lay them down at His feet because at the heart of it, 
when we have our idols exposed, and then we, when, we, when we have our idols rid from us, we experience Christ in a more pure way. And ultimately, no matter what we pursue with our lives, whether it's a right thing to pursue or a wrong thing to pursue, this is what we ought to be pursuing. Idols are like a, a woman returning to her abusive boyfriend time after time after time after time after time. We all can see it, obviously, on the outside. When I was a kid, I had uh, a cousin who was being abused by her husband, and everybody in the family was like, what are you doing? Why do you keep going back to this guy? He's going to beat you up. He beats you up every weekend. He goes and gets drunk, and then he beats you up. Idols, for us, are just like that. We return to something that we know is going to beat us up and leave us empty because we have this temporary need for fulfillment. But ultimately, God wants to fulfill our lives. Go back to the the story of of Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 2 when when they are confronted with the fall. Uh, It is a knowledge idol that separates Adam and Eve from God. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And they are, the serpent says, eat this and you will be like God. You will know like God knows. They had a a craving for knowledge and it cost them perfection. It cost them the kingdom of God. I want knowledge more than I want God. It's what this knowledge idol was. And and let me say, as as God exposes idols in our lives, this is not about today. Your life is not about today. Your soul, your existence, is not about today. If we were to take the 70 years that you will spend on this planet and map them out on the line of eternity... They are so utterly and completely insignificant in respect to the the great length and the the eternity. That line never ends. And you're going to spend 70 years on this planet. And we get so consumed in our little, what's going to happen to me next week? What's going to happen to me next month? What's going to happen to me in 2012? What's going to happen when I graduate? What's going to happen to my marriage? We're so consumed by that because we have propped up these idols of of significance. We've propped up these idols of wealth, of money, of of family, of happiness, of comfort, when ultimately relationship with God is the only thing worth pursuit. And at at the heart of, of, of sin is, God, I don't trust you. At the heart of idols is, God, I don't trust you to provide me with my happiness, so I'm going to go find it on my own. Adam and Eve, remember that story. God said, eat any tree you want except that one. At the heart of Eve's motivation to eat that that fruit was, God, I don't trust that you have my best interest in mind, so I'm going to take this apple. At the heart of her idol was a distrust for God. Because idols seemingly give us peace, give us meaning, give us value, give us comfort, give us significance, but they are all temporary. They're all temporary. Back to the scripture. Mark 10, 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, 
and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus has exposed the idol of this guy. And remember, this guy has done everything right since birth. Kept all the commandments. But didn't have connection with God. Adam and Eve, back in that story, they say that they were naked and were unashamed. Because that... The story of Adam and Eve pre-fall is the picture of the kingdom of God, the picture of the peace and the shalom that we were created to enjoy and experience. Naked and unashamed before each other and before God. This guy, this rich young ruler, God, Jesus, strips him, and now he's naked, and now he feels ashamed because his significance, his clothing that he is wearing is his money. And God says, get rid of it. No, I can't get rid of it. It's something that I have to keep between us. Ridding ourselves of idols is stripping ourselves naked in front of people and in front of God. Naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. This guy is now, Christ strips him of his idol and he's naked before God and he feels ashamed because he is clinging to to that idol. He is going back to his abusive boyfriend, his abusive husband. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away. Don't lose the, meta- the, 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 the metaphor that's being taught in the story. The story is he comes and humiliates himself humiliates himself in this culture. Men don't run. Men don't kneel. He's at the feet of Jesus, humiliated. And Jesus strips him of his idol. And the man went away. The story is the guy stands up and he walks away. The metaphor is we come before God. He presses in on us. He destroys our idols. He he exposes them. And our options are, yes, Jesus, Take it away. And I stand before you naked and unashamed. Or, stand and walk away. And I begged of God to expose idols in every heart, every soul that walks into this room tonight. God, expose our idols as you've exposed this man's idols. And may our response not be, go away. And the next word, he didn't go away. He went away sorrowful. Because... His significance, his identity, his purpose, what gave him comfort and meaning was his money. And I'm not going to give it away. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? See this picture. This is Jesus' mode all the time. He teaches publicly and then he brings his disciples in close for a living room conversation. And that's what's happening here. This guy, very public, very public situation that's happening and he walks away 
And then he turns to his disciples, probably in a very quiet voice, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easy to trust in money because it does bring earthly temporary security. But it's false. Ecclesiastes 5.10, written by Solomon, says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Solomon, the, the wisest and richest man to ever walk this planet, in his book Ecclesiastes, in his, his writings Ecclesiastes, says, calls wisdom, self-indulgence, money, work, wealth, and honor all vanity. These are all things that we chase after, but they are all completely empty. They are idols. They are the thing that we think will give us significance, we think will give us purpose, we think will give us meaning, but ultimately, they are worthless. And Solomon had all of those things to exhausting degrees. He had wealth, he had work, he had self-indulgence, he had money, he had women, he had sex, he had whatever he wanted, as much as he wanted, and he calls all of that vanity. Because it is not God. It is the created, not the creator. All of that is, is idle. In our story, Jesus continues here, speaking to his disciples, which is his mode. Teach publicly, and then bring them together for a quiet conversation. Verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. I would think that after two and a half years of being with Jesus, watching him do all these miracles, all this stuff, that these guys wouldn't be amazed. But they were amazed. He said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I want to ask you a question. If you're jotting stuff down, jot this question down and, and answer it honestly later on this week. What are you rich in? The rich young ruler is rich in money. And he trusted in it. What has God heaped upon you? What are you rich in? Because that could be your idol. Probably is your idol. It's the thing that you trust in that gives you your security. That's not God. And then, after you answer that question, read verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And remember, this guy did everything right religiously. Followed all the rules. Yet trusted in himself. Trusted in his money. Verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished. Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Astonished. They're Jesus bringing them together in a quiet conversation. This is probably a loud question. What are you talking about, Jesus? Who can be saved then? What? You don't make any sense. Verse 27. He looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. 
This is the gospel here, verse 25 and in verse 27. Verse 25, it's easier for a, the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The first half of the gospel. You are worse and more messed up than you ever thought you were. If you are rich in anything, and I don't think I, I, I don't think anybody would have to think too hard to be rich in something. It's easier for a camel to go through a needle. We are rich in things, and so because of that, when we trust in the things that we are rich in, it is difficult for us to, to understand our need for Christ. We are more messed up than we ever thought we were. Then the second half of the gospel, verse 27, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. While you are more messed up than you ever thought you were, you are more accepted and loved than you ever hoped you were. Own that as, as you wrestle with idols, and I hope you do. As God exposes idols in your heart, and I hope he does. Understand this. It is impossible for you to rid yourself of that idol. But with God, all things are possible. That is the gospel. That is the beauty of what God has done for us by providing his son, Jesus Christ, in our lives to save us. Because our religion, our rule keeping, all that stuff can't save us. It's Christ and Christ alone in His death. This statement, with, a man, it's, with man it's impossible, with God, for all things are possible with God. This statement is the utter impossibility of man to enter into the kingdom of God on his own achievement. You can't save yourself. There's nothing in this world that man can do or attain that can be his Savior. Jesus, here, in this picture, is drawing a circle around himself and says, everybody outside of this circle is without hope, except that you marry me. Come to me. Everyone outside of me is completely and totally without hope. But Jesus says, follow me, find me, trust me, and you'll find life where you can stand before God naked and unashamed. And stand before man naked and unashamed because your idols have been stripped away and you only see God and you only partake of God in a beautiful, perfect, and pure way. Verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 28. Peter, the mouthpiece of the disciples, began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Peter's sitting there scratching his head. Wait a second. We've done this. We've left everything. We've left family. We've left the security of our jobs to follow you. What's Jesus' response? Yes, Peter, yes. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, all things that we can take for granted, all things that we can see as idle, everything there, family, children, lands, everything you have left those things to follow me. And you have followed the gospel. Verse 30. None of the people who will do that will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Because perfect, pure relationship with the Father is riches here in this time. Today, 2009, August 30th. Purity, pure relationship with Him is Richness here, but also 
not just in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come in eternal life. Remember, our 70 years is just a blip on the scheme of eternity. We get to experience the beauty of heaven, the beauty of relationship with God, unaffected by persecution, unaffected by sin, unaffected by idols for all eternity. And the beauty of that is what drives us. Verse 31. Very simple, Christ, final teaching. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus is always teaching discipleship, and He's always teaching contrary to beliefs. Wait a second. Everyone who will be first will be last, and last ultimately is deny yourself and follow Christ because Christ is going to give you and part into you the Creator and not the created. I want to end with a couple of quotes. Of actually, four quotes. Uh, maybe five. Not, it is five. Romans 1.25. Let's say that first. Romans 1.25. Paul, speaking, says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship the created instead of the creator. That is at the heart of idolatry. The first quote comes from Tim, Tim Keller. He says, Instead of being God's vice regents, that is those ruling along with God and ruling over creation, now creation masters us. Instead of ruling over creation, when we bow down to idols, when we worship them, those idols rule us. When we seek pleasure outside of God's intended purpose, that thing becomes our master. We become its slave. We are the wife, the, the woman who returns to the abusive husband time after time after time after time after time. Every time he... he punches us and gives us a black eye. Every time he gets drunk and punches us and gives us a black eye, we continue to return because it is our master. And it is not a good master. Next quote. Since we need to worship something because of how we, were, we are created, we cannot eliminate God without creating God substitutes. At the core of who we are, God imprinted it in our souls to chase hard after Him. With reckless abandon, do all that we can to know Him, to experience relationship with Him. Because of the fall, that's been jaded, that's been fractured and messed up because of sin in the world. And now we chase after created things instead of God. We chase after God substitutes. We chase after money, wealth, fame, purpose, identity that's not found in Christ. We chase after all those things with abandon. They are God's substitutes. Now let's go back a few hundred years and hear what Martin Luther has to say. Ten commandments, the ten commandments begin with two commandments against idolatry. It is because the fundamental problem in law-breaking is always idolatry. The first two commandments, you should have no other gods before me, and do not make any graven images and bow down to them. Those are the first two commandments, and they are commandments against idolatry. They are commandments against what do you have between you and I, you and, you and God. 
at the fundamental problem with law breaking, the fundamental problem with sin is idolatry. We want to pursue, let's take adultery. We want to pursue sex outside of God's intended purpose for it. And thus, we idolize sex. It is more important to us than relationship with God. Adultery is an idolatry problem. Murder. We don't value who you are. God has told us not. We do it. We lose relationship. Murder is an idolatry problem. The last quote, and this is last quote from Luther. This is beautiful. If we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased, pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please Him only through and after our works, then it is pure deception. Outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self as a false savior. Two parts to that. If we doubt that Christ, that God is gracious to us and has given us Christ so that we can have full acceptance from Him, we see ourselves as our Savior, as a failed Savior. Or, if we lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves like the rich young man did and follow all these rules and think that somehow gains us our acceptance, we are our own Savior. And it's a lie. It's false and will lead to us walking away sorrowful as the rich young ruler did. We are inward setting ourselves up as false Savior. Last quote and then I'll be done. Tim Keller again. The Bible then does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many and a rare sin found only in primitive people. He parenthetically states that because a lot of times we think idol worship of actually some little carved out image in primitive lands. That's not at all what idol worship is. Rather, all our failures to trust God wholly or to live rightly are at root idolatry. Something we make more important than God. Just like Eve. Knowledge is more important than God. I'm going to chase after that and abandon what he has set out for me. Something we make more important to God. There is always a reason for sins. And under our sins are idolatrous desires. Ultimately, here is, here is my prayer for me and my heart and my sinful desire to be accepted and loved and craved and respected and my prayer and desire for each of us, each of you. God, we want what you want. Press on us. Expose our idols. We want what you want, press on us. Expose our idols. Because at the end of, of that, at, at the answeredness of that prayer, wanting what he wants and having our idols exposed is purity of relationship with him, which is what we were designed and created to do. Stand before God naked and unashamed. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for the truth of your scripture. I thank you for the perfect life of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the beauty of the gospel, that we are more messed up than we ever thought we could be. We have more idols in our lives than we could ever expose in a lifetime. Yet you accept us and give us relationship with you through the cross. God, I thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray that you would come among us now as we respond to what you've said to us, Father. Convince us to want what you want. Expose our idols. Press on us, Father. Break us down from our pride because at the heart of it, you want a deeper and more pure relationship with us because it is that and that alone that gives us perfect, all-pleasing joy. Convince us, Father. Expose idols. Press on us. Love us as only you can love us. It's in Christ's perfect and holy name that I pray. Amen.